HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And may I, before I introduce my guest, remind you all that it's a pledge drive uh, week or weeks for us. And so go to your donate button now and hit the donate button um, and give us some money because where else are you going to hear programming like this? Um, So having said that, let me introduce my guest. Her name is Sarah Teal. Uh, She founded the Adirondack Grazers in 2012. But before that, she was an award-winning documentarian, and she uh, founded Teal Productions in 1988 after working at PBS for six years. She went into partnership with Sean Edwards in 2008. 2000, 2009, sorry, uh, where she joined HBO to co-produce The Weight of the Nation. Did everybody see that? That was a fantastic series uh, on obesity in America, which she produced with the Institute of Medicine, National Institute of Health, and the Centers for Disease Control. The series will uh, aired in the spring of 2012, and since then she's been working on Grazers, which is the subject of our uh, discussion today. Um, Grazers is the story of a beef cooperative up in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. Um, and so welcome to the program, uh, Sarah, and tell us uh, why, I guess, when you founded Adirondack, (laughs) when you founded Adirondack Grazers, it dawned on you that perhaps you needed to have a cooperative to, uh, you know, make it uh, financially viable, or how did that work out? What happened? (laughs) Tell us the story. Um, um, Well, the reason this happened is because after Way to the Nation, I, I told my husband I would take a year off. And um, instead, we went up to our farm on the New York-Vermont border. Um, and instead, I ended up founding a co-op because 
a lot of the farms around me were going out of business, especially the dairy, former dairy farms. Right. And it seemed to me kind of crazy that if actually they went into grass-fed beef, they could um, make some money. Um, we started doing grass-fed beef on our farm because we wanted to restore some of our fields, and it's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I realized that you, can't, you cannot sell as one farm because you can't keep up a consistent supply. Ah, oh, yes. So really, <laughs> only as a co-op, yes, exactly. But only as a co-op can you do that, where you've got enough farms involved that you can keep supplying restaurants or butchers or whatever oh, consistently every week, every week, without letting anybody down. Yeah. So that's why we started it. So and um, how we, many farms we, were involved? Go Just, ahead. How many farms did you have involved when you started the co-op? Well, in the beginning, there was just eight to ten farms. Mm-hmm. Now we're up to 36. And roughly so, how many head of cattle does that represent? Um, oh, gosh, thousands. And in fact, I oh, should thousands. just have oh, looked good. this up. Um, but no, no, it represents, I mean, some of the farmers have herds that are around about three, 400. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have as small as 50. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the tiniest. We only have twenty something right now. Yeah, but um, it means that you can do it any size. So oh. you know, we're sending four animals, in fact, off this week. But um, you know, some farmers get to send you know fifteen at a time, that kind of thing. So it it, it works out having different sizes. You can. It doesn't matter. Huh, interesting. And you can keep a supply going all the way through the year, which is important when, in yeah. terms of supply chain. So um, yeah. so when you started uh, the Adirondack Grazing Cooperative, is that, what, is, is that the right name? The Adirondack yeah. Grazing Cooperative? Yeah. Um, you started with eight farms, and you started it because you realized that uh, these farms were going out of business. These had all been in the past former dairy farms. And that was what I meant by that question, by the way. Like, just backtrack a little bit about the dairy industry and why it right. became uh, an, an, an obvious sort of economic uh, decision to go from dairy farming to, ca- to beef cattle. Because I think that's an, in- an important part of this story. Right. Well, the dairy prices go up and down, and the dairy right. prices got so low that farmers were losing money on every pint. I think my local farmer told me that it was costing him a dollar sixty-five to produce a pint of milk, and he was making a buck. Yeah. So with those kind of numbers, um, it, you pretty farmers are used to not making any money, which is the crazy thing. But <laughs> yeah. when you're losing money that rapidly. Um, there comes a point where it doesn't make any sense. And, and, and there has been a real consolidation in our area, uh-huh. but the consolidation has meant that they are putting them in barns. So most of our farmers now, dairy farmers, seem to house their cattle inside. A lot of them cut off their tails because once you've got them inside, only, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of disease. So they cut off their tails, which has always struck me as pretty awful. You mean disease and because it's borne by flies? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our farmers around me didn't want to do that either. Mm-hmm. Sure. It was kind of miserable. Yeah. So um, grass-fed beef is a lot easier. One of our farmers in our films said dairy farming is like having um, wives, except that there's a hundred of them because <laughs> you can't ever leave. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's um, grass-fed beef is, is – 
is is actually much easier. And these are people who know cattle. You know, they sure. know the pastures and they know their cows and they know how to breed them and take care of them. So it, it, it actually works out very well to have former, former dairy farmers doing this. You know what's interesting to me, um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, just about um, sort of, because I've been, I've been uh, conducting these interviews for close to six years now, so I've got a pretty good beat on, um, you know, northeastern agriculture and the meat industry in general. And um, one of the biggest uh, issues when grass-fed beef started to become trendy, which is about, well, maybe around 10 years ago now, um, you know, it wasn't particularly easy to cook well. And right. I think that persists uh, as a problem. And I know that a lot of people, you know, wanted to buy grass-fed beef and then found that whenever they cooked it, it never turned out well. And, begin, you know, given the premium price that one pays for it, um, it sort of uh, fell into a little bit of disfavor, I think, with consumers. And then um, I'm hoping that genetics have caught up and people are starting to figure out how to breed yeah. a better flavor. Well, what are you using for your genetics um, in terms of I your think, beef cattle? Yeah. I think I think there are several things that have changed, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, one is genetics, and people have discovered that only certain breeds really get big enough on grass. Right. And so um, our farmers tend to have Devons are really good. Delta Galloways are small, but very good beef. Yeah. Um, Angus, we have Angus. And if they've been on grass, Angus now for several generations, they are fantastic. Um, Herefords or Hereford Angus Cross are very good. Huh. But there are certain breeds that are, that are not great. And, and then the other thing that has happened, now there's been generations of, of purely grass-fed animals that's better, but it's baleage that has made the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should tell baleage, us what baleage is. Yeah, yeah is when, you, when you, um, you, you harvest your grass, in the spring and the summer, yeah. and then you wrap it in those big white plastic things, and they look like marshmallows everywhere. Yeah. Um, um, and then you can feed the cattle all through the winter, 100% grass, uh-huh. and um, they don't lose weight. I mean, they continue to maintain and to grow, and um, in fact, we're finding that our grass-fed beef is now almost as big as the grain fish. So, so what you mean, before you had uh, multiple generations of grass-fed cattle, um, you would have maybe one generation, and then if you fed them baleage, they didn't thrive? Is that what you're saying, that they had to be fed grain in order to survive a winter? Yeah, well, you could you can feed them hay, but I see. Hay, hay wasn't keeping them, wasn't building their weight. Mm-hmm. Baleage is very, very rich. It's slightly fermented. Oh. incredibly rich, and they absolutely love it. Yes. And it, um, it maintains their weight in a way that hay, normal hay just doesn't seem to. You know, one of the things, um, I've done a bit of uh, interviewing, I'm sorry to keep cutting you off like this, but I, you know, this is a really right. interesting <laughs> topic for me, and I, I, I actually spent some time this fall up in the Millerton area, and I, I was interviewing a few different um, farmers who, uh, for various reasons, are kind of doing what you're talking about in your, in your documentary. Um, and uh, they they made a big deal about the labeling issue. So I, I just want to like touch mm-hmm. on that for a second because they they were they I won't name names here, but they were referencing various markets that would market something as grass fed when actually it had been mm-hmm. finished on grain, or the animal mm-hmm. had been given grain at some point during the winter, or and this exactly. was a source of great consternation to them, and they felt that it was very unfair. And I I just wanted to unravel with you a little bit of why why that's even an issue. I mean, do consumers care? and why should they? 
Um, well, we we have always been uh, made a real distinction between um, our, our beef that is 100% grass-fed. So they've been on pastures all year, and then they're finished, what they call finished, in the last month just on grass as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then grass-fed, so they've been on pastures all year, and grain finished. So in the last three or four months, they're fed grain. Which, and by the way, is the commodity model. the yeah. grain because yes. it's, uh, the animals are fatter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more fat. Um, and others prefer the 100% grass. And in fact, once I've got used to the 100% grass and I know how to cook it <laughs> now, um, I prefer it. But um, I think there ought to be a distinction because just to call it grass-fed isn't right. Yeah, and, um, and and there ought to be distinctions made and in in labels, and um, even on menus and that kind of thing, because I mean, it, I mean, grass is after all a grain. I mean, it's um, grain is a grass, but it it doesn't. Animals don't um, uh, munch it in the same way and metabolize it in the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's it is it is. And farmers that are doing 100% grass, they do take a, a great and have to great care of their pastures and what they're feeding their animals. Mm. And 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 there is a great deal of pride. And 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 also they're having to rotate. Um, all of our farmers do um, mob grazing and and uh, rotational grazing, so right. they're moving their animals a lot. Um, and I I, I think. There, there should be. Labeling is important, and the USDA should make a distinction, I think. Interesting. The state at this point, um, and certainly the federal government, aside from saying that something is USDA, you know, organic or whatever, or you, they don't have a, a labeling mechanism for, for this no. kind of beef, do they? No. No, there is USDA grass-fed, but yeah. it doesn't make a distinction. And these are farmers, yeah, that can just be feeding them mountains of grain. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And it's also... And, and sorry, our farmers are small enough um, and concerned enough in our area, in our state, mm-hmm. that I don't think there's a lot of abuse of that going on, but um, that there will be and can be. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I could hook you up with some people who would tell you very differently, Sarah, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, my God, did I get an earful. Um, (laughs) not that it wasn't fascinating. I mean, to me, it's like, you know, in a way it's, it's sort of, um, I mean, I I felt it was a bit unfortunate actually, because I think that if you're going to go with a sort of more quote unquote natural in the best sense, as opposed to the commercial sense, uh, of, of husbandry to, to sort of fight over sort of labeling issues when you really want to sort of get everyone gathered under the same tent is a bit unfortunate, but I, I certainly understand your point, especially as it regards uh, with regards to land stewardship and uh, and the, yeah. the and how how labor intensive mob grazing and the whole sort of holistic uh, grazing management practice is, which we will get to at a certain point. But back to your movie because we've gone far far astray from that. So now, when you guys started <laughs> when you started aggregating your 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 initial eight. Uh, co-op members what were the biggest challenges in creating the co-op and um and then to go on from there like how did you like find a slaughterhouse how did you process how did you package how did you distribute I mean, <laughs> like to me these are the real issues in trying to relocalize um agriculture and so i i just was hoping you would be able to you know take us through all that that whole process because i'm sure it was arduous it, it, it was pretty arduous and um 
I mean, the thing, the things that we got right were that we've we've been running the grazers as a as a business. Yeah. And so there is a board. The board meets every uh, week on a conference call. We have regular meetings, you know, and they run everything. And now we have a full-time paid uh, operations manager and a membership coordinator and various things. Excellent. So to keep it that way has 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 worked out very well. Um, in the beginning, it was tough because we would argue about price. We would argue about anything you can think of. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's just, you know, that's setting things up. Um, and then we were most of us in Washington County. So in the beginning, we used Eagle Bridge Custom Meats, which is a sure. small and very good um, processor in Eagle I'm Bridge. I'm familiar with them, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we started with them, and that was great because... Um, they were small enough that they worked hard with us and we worked hard on labeling and we did some frozen beef in the beginning and they worked hard on that too. Um, um, and so we had a lot of support from them. And also they would tell us who were the good farmers. Oh. And, and you know, they see the, the end product. And so we mm. worked with them to only be sure that we worked with the best farmers. Um, and then since we've grown... Now we use um, New York Custom Processing in Bridgewater, which is west of Albany, Mm -hmm. and we're starting to form relationships with other slaughterhouses around the place. Um, But we've found it best to just sort of keep it, um, keep those relationships close, work very closely with them. Yeah. well, one of the things again to go back to the confer- to the to the conversations that I had upstate was um, uh, the farmers that I talked to said that they didn't have trouble finding people who would slaughter, but what they did have trouble was um, was convincing the processors to cut to the specs that they wanted as opposed to the specs that they were used to. And I wondered if you had come to that yeah. same problem. Yeah. Well, we started in the beginning. I thought we would have more of that problem. Mm-hmm. So um, in the beginning, we started with bringing a butcher up from New York to cut it. But um, actually, Eagle Bridge are very easy to work with. And yes, they have their preferred ways of doing things, but you can work with them and persuade them to do things otherwise. Mm-hmm. So um, we didn't. We were fine with that. Uh-huh. And we haven't had any problem. They, they have good cutters there. Um, right. We did work with one other slaughterhouse in the beginning that wasn't good, uh-huh. and so that was horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> now, a lot of your beef probably winds up frozen. Am I right? How do you manage the? No. no? Oh, it all goes fresh no, where, into restaurants and and farmers markets. <clears throat> well, um, we at one point did a lot of frozen, and and it became. We found that our sweet spot is sort of in wholesale um, and selling whole animals or half animals um, because doing frozen, it meant a lot of management of tiny pieces of meat. Yeah. <laughs> and our coordinator at the time, finally, who, uh, a farmer called Lisa Randalls, who's wonderful, and she had a fit because she was her whole time running little tiny pieces of beef here, there, and everywhere. Horrible. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we get back to doing more of that. Um, but for a while, we sort of stopped. Until we, and, and down here, there isn't much of a market for it in New York. Uh-huh. You mean in New um, York because City? Because people don't have freezers at home. They don't have big freezers. You know, uh-huh. upstate, people right. will keep half a cow. 
Yes. You know, in their, in their walk-in freezer or their freezer in the garage. Absolutely. We did uh, that when I was a child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I no, totally exactly. Yeah. That's the perfect, perfect way to do it. Yeah. But down here, you know, you people tend to buy fresh and... Um, if they have frozen, they've got, you know, maybe a couple of steaks in the top of the fridge. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so when you sell, you're selling wholesale, who are you, you're selling to restaurants primarily or into supermarkets or institutions? Have you tapped into the college market? Who's your, um, no, who we're, your buyers? We're, we're looking at the, the college market, actually. Mm-hmm. But no, um, we've, and we found restaurants was tough, too, because they, um, most of them haven't really got their heads around how to cook grass-fed properly, mm-hmm. um, and then also how to order. Like, we, we sell to Gramercy Tavern, and Michael Anthony, the chef there, right. spent years figuring out how to buy half a cow a week and to use every tiny bit of it. Yes. So he uses every bit, and they make these amazing burgers, but they also do um, uh, all kinds of different things Oh yeah, with it. We're but a huge so, fan of Michael Anthony. We love him. Yes, but he's kind of rare, and we're hoping yeah. to hold, in the spring, we are holding um, some cooking classes with different chefs to show others how to sort of get their head around how to do this. You mean using um, nose to tail? Yes, nose to tail. Well, you really have to Which, redesign your menu as a restaurant owner, I mean, or as a chef, right, in order to yeah. accommodate that. It's, it's quite a tall order, I think. It's quite a tall order, but we also sell through a group called um, Main Street Wholesale, and they're in Farmingdale, Mm -hmm. and they have a lot of restaurants on their books already. Mm. So they can also buy a whole animal and then get rid of all the bits and pieces. Then they can just do the distribution part of it. Yes. Then it's their headache, not mine. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what I I mean. That's what you're looking for is somebody who is that distribution piece because, um, to again, uh, sort of harp on my vast experience here. No, but. But I mean, literally in the six years I've been sitting in this chair, uh, you know, production issues and distribution issues have been the biggest impediments um, to uh, growing out a regional agricultural economy. It's really it's it's yep. been a, it's been a tough go for I think almost everybody, no matter how successful. Um, so when you sell, so the hardest part of this process is is selling all the bits and pieces. So it's really finding somebody who's willing to uh, go that distance with you. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, uh, before we take a short break here, and then we're going to come back and talk more about this, but but what, what if any, um, actually, let's, let's ask, let I, me ask you I this. should also tell you that uh, actually our biggest customer now is Fresh Direct. Really? And, yeah. And so you have a big supply, been, girl. Yeah, and that's been very um, successful, and they've been wonderful, and building it up slowly with us but we're now selling them between 10 and 15 animals a week wow so that's a lot so um, that represents but they have also figured about 25,000 pounds 2,500 yeah. pounds a week yeah or no 25,000 pounds a week yeah it's a lot <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, that's getting up into the big boys. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I had George Faison on for from DeBraga and Spitler. You probably know George. Mm-hmm. And he was mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, these people upstate, they're like just doing like two cows or 10 cows or nobody has more than that. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, like that doesn't sound quite right to me either, you know? I mean, but anyway, um, so tell you what, Sarah, let's stay on the line. We're going to go to a short sponsor drop and a little pitch for our pledge drive. And uh, we'll be right back with Sarah Teal, um, the producer for Grazer's uh, Beef Cooperative Story. And uh, we'll talk more about regional ag. 
Since 2001, Heritage Foods USA has sold pasture-raised, antibiotic-free heritage meats to restaurants and homes around the country. Our farmers raise their animals with care using traditional methods guaranteed to produce the very best-tasting meat. Our pork breeds include Berkshire, Red Wattle, Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, Large Black, and Tamworth, and our beef comes from Piedmontese, Angus Akiyushi, Belgian Blue, Highland, Simmental, and Belted Galloway cattle. We also carry a rotation of 24 rare breeds of heritage chicken, seasonal specialties like lamb, goat, geese, and of course, heritage turkeys. Visit us online at www.heritagefoodsusa.com or give us a call at 718-389-0985 to place your order today. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I, I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Hit the pledge button, people. Hit the pledge button. This is Katie Kiefer at What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. We're talking today with Sarah Teal, who is the producer of Grazers, a beef cooperative story. And is that the right title? Am I saying that right, Sarah? I'm sorry if I'm garbling <laughs> Well, look, the documentary is called um, Grazers, a Cooperative Story. A Cooperative Story. It should be Grazers, a Cooperative Story, question mark. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is because you've just described <laughs> an incredible success to me. I mean, over the course of what you made, the documentary took about two and a half years to make, right? And over yep. the course of, of however many years it's been, three years, you've gone from eight farms to, to 35. I think that's a wild success. Extraordinary. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's growing, but I think the, the market's there. And I, of course, you guys, um, Heritage, have been buying from us. Emily in um, Essex Street Market gets um, a whole beef every other week from us. Oh, is, is that great. right? Cool. Yeah. That's so nice to hear. I'm glad we're doing the right thing. Um, so let's go back to, um, you know, talking sort of in more broad strokes. Um, when you started the co-op, did you, did you, uh, you know, address um, or did you inquire uh, about, I think, I think I thought I heard in an interview something about how you got a grant to start this. And what, what has the state offered or what is the state able to offer in terms of, um, helping a regional co-op like this uh, get its legs under it and, and get going. Is there any any money available, any expertise? How would people... <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> not really. I mean, the Cornell Cooperative Extension has been fantastic. Yeah. And I, I guess they're partly state-funded. And they've been... Um, there's a woman called Sandy Buxton who's been really important. 
We also got a SARE grant, um, a Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education grant, which mm-hmm. is USDA as well. And a woman called Carol Delaney there has been great. And and I believe there is more USDA money coming. But that was interesting. There was um, a farm-to-table state meeting the other day, the first one, I suppose, of of hopefully many, mm-hmm. um, that the lieutenant governor was there and various people were there, and there were um, some very good panels. I don't know if any of you guys went, but um, what was interesting I was there were flat panels and people there, but no Q&A. They didn't want to hear anything from the people in the audience. Really? No feedback. Yeah, it was very strange. And um, so there's, you know... Uh, Twitter's been helpful. We were friended by um, Senator Gillibrand's office, and they've been reaching out to us for more information. So I think there is, a, you know, we sold a million dollars, close to a million dollars in grass-fed beef this year. Wow. And that's going pretty much directly to farmers. Fantastic. There's a small percentage that goes to the co-op to help run it. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think there is an understanding now from the governor and from the, the New York City mayor, that there is potential for bringing money to upstate New York where they seriously need it and to farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there is a willingness to try and help. I just don't think they know how. And um, yes, it would be very helpful to get funding. Um, I was at something that the Modern Farmer magazine held recently yeah, about I lab, love that lab beef. I love that magazine. Yeah. Um, so it was about lab beef, and the guy that would started this company to make cultured meat, you know, meat in the laboratory, essentially. Yeah, petri dish meat, he yeah. Got, yeah, he got $11 million in, in funding in the first sort of week of having done more or less nothing. And, and it just made me so wild, yeah. you know? Here we are doing something that is bringing money to farmers and for a really good product that people want. Right. And, and in addition, yeah, there is represents environmental stewardship of the first order, which right. I think, you know, we all can appreciate that aspect of it, right. even if we don't think of it as first thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And it's and yet there's no interest in, in supporting that kind of thing. I mean, we're kind of proud that we're, we're running it as a business and that we don't need that much help. We did get um, a grant from New York Farm Viability for um, seventy-five thousand, which was incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it would be nice to have some more state support. It definitely would. I mean, we can we can only we've got one membership coordinator running around out there signing up more farms because we now need more farms. We've got enough sales because your demand is high enough. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we were going to, I want to, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was something I, I did want to address with you because um, a few weeks ago I had uh, Mel Coleman on from Nyman Ranch and we were talking about, um, and this goes back to this Chef's Collaborative and the whole theme of Chef's Collaborative this year is about scaling up and how to make mm-hmm. that work without um, depressing prices, without, you know, yep. uh, finding other ways of sort of basically shooting yourself in the foot um, while yep. at the same time guaranteeing your farmers you know, a fair price for their product. And so you're saying that you have enough demand now that you need more people to be following. Oh, how do you certify your farmers? Just out of curiosity, how do you know that (laughs) you find a farmer that you want to work with? 
We have very good, uh, we have strict protocols, mm -hmm. but um, we have um, two people now running who just, I mean, we know our farmers very well. We've, right. we've always visited them. Um, and then now we make sure that we visit them at least once or twice a year. Yeah. Um, and one of our farmers is um, in charge of that now, and um, she's great. But it's amazing how people will actually police each other. Uh -huh. Because there are a lot of people in the co-op who are very proud of how they're doing raising grass-fed beef. Sure. And they don't want to dilute that um, that brand and that whatever. So um, we aren't, I hope, letting in people who who will do that. I mean, we're, we're keeping it pretty, um, pretty strict on the protocols and making sure that we're we're keeping an eye on people. And it, but we also do rely on the slaughterhouse. So them uh -huh. saying to us, you know, hey, <laughs> that that last one wasn't great. Or from Fresh Direct. I mean, there's been a lot of feedback. Emily um, from Heritage gave us a lot of feedback in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then Fresh Direct now, it's more like um, a partnership in the sense that they they give us a lot of um, feedback on who's, who's good and who's not so good and how to improve things. And, uh -huh. So it becomes a it does become a conversation and a partnership to keep the standards up. Right. Well, that sounds fantastic. It's great that you have uh, it's still small enough scale that you have that kind of direct interface with your participants so that you can yeah. um you know continue to sort of not just monitor but also advise and help people who might be struggling perhaps with some of the protocols. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I think is so interesting, and, and, I, and no one has ever been able to answer this um, properly, and I, in a way it's sort of a hyper, hyper, hyperbolic question, I suppose, but why is there no venture capital uh, investing in <laughs> regional agriculture? What do you think the I answer is to that? I don't know. I mean, I mean isn't I that weird? Know. It's so trendy. You'd think people would be falling over themselves to set up, you know, production and aggregation warehouses or facilities or distribution networks or buy a fleet of trucks or something. But nothing I like know. that is happening. And I don't get that. I know. I don't get that either. And especially with the trucking. I think the trucking's coming because there's such an opportunity there yeah. for people to, to set up proper trucking. I mean, we were distributed by regional access, and they just dropped picking anything up from Eagle Bridge one day, and, and that left us completely stranded after yeah. lots of other people. And what did you and, do? How did you solve that? Did you have to rent a truck or buy a truck or rely well, on the no, farmers? None of us or... wanted to do that because right. it's not easy. Um, but sure. Mark Jaffe, Jaffe from Fresh Connection, Fresh Connect, um, uh, came in and has been doing it. And it, you know, I think he's going to be growing his company. But it's it's definitely a gap. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge gap, and it's it's the same gap that existed, you know, when I started doing this program. And that's the thing that I, you know, given the escalation yeah. of interest in food and the you know the overwhelming changes in our you know, just basic knowledge about where our food comes from and why we want to eat the way we eat or whatever, you know, it's like there is so much um, media around this and yet somehow uh, money has lagged far behind. And I, I just find that such a conundrum. I really can 
cannot yeah. um, think of what the uh, what the reason is behind it. Let's talk a little bit about because we only have a few minutes left. Um, let's talk a little bit about how farms are disappearing. I mean, one of the more um, touching elements of your film, I thought, was you know some of the farmers were saying, "Well, this has been in my gen- in my family for generations," and you know, yeah. uh, you know, we were we were dying as a dairy farm. We we, we reinvented ourselves, and and you know, I want the farm to stay alive until the kids come. But what about people who are younger and who want to get into farming? Um, you know, the land values have increased so much, especially in upstate New York. What What is the solution there? Is there, do you find more land <laughs> leasing and land borrowing and, you know, from rich people yeah. who have bought old farms? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's I a think, lot of I that, mean, right? A lot of our farmers, in, in the film, there's a, one farmer, Steve Reed, and he leases a, most of his land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, you know, we always lease to our local farmer. It's not that anybody's any much money is changing hands. Right. Um, but it, it allows whoever owns that land to get an ag, ag exemption. Right. Um, and, and then you see your land actually work, which is the main thing. Right. And somebody is um, taking care of it. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody's taking care of it. So our opportunities for leasing, there are groups like um, our sponsor on the film was the Agricultural Stewardship Association uh-huh. in Greenwich, New York, and they're doing an awful lot to preserve farmland, but then also to help start starter farmers, you know, young farmers that want to come in. Yeah. Um, and I think the co-op is helpful for that kind of thing, too, because so often now those young people are starting, but they don't. They don't have the market, and they don't have the marketing ability, and um, to to really get going. And this would give this gives them a sort of guaranteed market, yeah. without much effort. You know, we take on all the marketing and the sales. Right. So so it's helpful for for new young farmers too. But it's definitely not easy to get in and to set to to, to make money. I mean, there are people doing it. Um, but it's hard work, and there's, I, I, you know, the, the the income isn't there. And then once you start a family, you're really screwed. <laughs> Well, you know, I I went to Australia this summer and uh, on a beef on a cattle uh, tour with the Meat and Livestock Association of Australia, which was a fascinating experience. As you can imagine, for a meat geek like me, you don't realize, Sarah, what a meat geek I am. But I am. And um, and I was I mean, there were farms and in Australia, obviously, the farms are vast. I mean, 70,000 acres, not unusual, okay? And these people are driving their kids three hours each way to go to school until that just becomes not possible. But it was just fast. I mean, like the sacrifices they make to stay on the farm and to keep their kids within the mainstream, but at the same time grow those kids up to be stewards of the land and be on the farm. It was fascinating. Anyway, enough about me. I love talking about myself when I'm interviewing someone else. That's what makes me such a great interviewer. (laughs) (laughs) But I think think that's what we've got to do. I mean, the film film points out, you know, New York State's losing a farm every three and a half, every three days. Yes, I heard that. And if we can't keep those... I just want those farms to stay in farm families because farm families know what they're doing. I yeah. mean, they've, they've been building, working that land, as you said, some of them for generations. That's right. And they know what they're doing. Yeah. And and it, we're losing that knowledge base. Yes. You know, once we, once, I mean, this is an old story, but it is, I don't think people realize how rapidly it's happening. 
and still happening. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it, again, it's, it's, it's back to the st- almost the dairy story where you talked about the consolidation of the dairy industry and how the prices became depressed. And certainly uh, the consolidation of the cattle industry is, you know, the stuff of, of, you know, nightmares. I mean, it's like why we eat the way we yeah. eat now is because of the consolidation and um, contraction of the meat industry as a whole into, you know, yeah. you know four or five main companies. So, um, you know, at the very least, we want to uh, establish a beachhead and hold on to it for dear life of people who still yeah. know how to just raise cattle the way they've done it for generations. Now, and that leads me to my next question, which is how the hell did you learn how to do it? I mean, you went up. You took a year off from producing, you know, award-winning documentary films for HBO, and, and the next thing you know, you're starting a crazy uh, beef cooperative. It's like, wait a minute, wait, you know, I'm, I'm missing a piece of the puzzle insane. here. I think it's a really but cool I, story. I grew up with it. I did grow up with it. My dad is a large animal vet, and I grew up in a little ah. village with farmers and around farmers. His and, name isn't James Harriet, dad, is it? No. Yeah, I think there must be something genetic. <laughs> I mean, my favorite book wasn't... was that was those James Harriet books of being a you know oh, a large animal vet exactly and exactly like yeah yeah he was yeah. he liked seagulls in those books yeah and my dad would used to sing opera to cows because he thought they liked it and which they do I've heard that but, yeah uh, <laughs> so I grew up with it but but um, we then started having our own grass fed beef in 2011. And even though we only have a tiny, um, we buy little ones from co-op members and then grow them up on the land. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been very useful because then I can see, I, I understand all the, the, the good things and all the challenges um, because we've got them right in our garden. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, <laughs> and do you have kids who right help you? There. I hope you have a right. pack of children who are mucking out the stalls and carrying the well, water. Well, and... our daughter was only six, and so, you know, she's grown up with them. She's grown up with them, too, and she's the little one in the film that, that that's um, uh, out there with the cows and yeah. perfectly happy to sit amongst them and read her books and things. <laughs> I saw... Um, um, yes, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's just it's just been nice actually having them around. <laughs> oh no, I think cattle are divine. Myself, I really oh, love cows. Me too. I think they're heaven. Me and, too. And I, I should send you the link to this video that I saw on Facebook of a little girl who was a little bit younger than your daughter who had let a young heifer into sort of the breezeway of her home, family home, and the cow was lying <laughs> down on the floor with the dog and the little girl, and the mom comes in and she's like, "Why is the cow in the house?" <laughs> <laughs> And the little girl is like this funny little story, and then she lies down with the the kid lies down with the cow and pulls the cow's head into her lap, and the oh, cow stays so there. And the woman says, "I don't think I can ever eat beef again." I know. Well, this is this is. This is I don't know how you do that. Yeah, it is a problem. We had a photograph of Rosie, my my our daughter, um, with the cows when she was quite little. She must have been like three or four, uh-huh. and um, but she has no trout. She's no pants on. <laughs> And she's with, with them all right round her. And we had um, people were like, you should maybe take that off your website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess some people might get that. People with the wrong kind of thinking in general would not appreciate yeah, it. Right? Exactly. Well, Sarah, I'm sorry to say we must wrap this up. Um, please let us promote your film and, and tell us when any other screenings I hope will be happening soon. Um, Thank you. Yes, we're getting. We're funny, it's been so weird because it was in Doc NYC. Yep. And now we're getting a lot of interest from PBS and distributors. So it's going to have a, a life. 
<laughs> I'm so glad to hear that because I, you know, I, I wish you the best. I think it's a great project. Um, and Thank actually, um, when we're not on the air, we will discuss a little project of mine that is quite complimentary to that, um, if you don't mind. And, uh, and sure. so people can go to your website, which is? Um, for the Grazers documentary or the Grazers. Yes. The, the Adirondack Grazers is www.adkgrazers.com. It's for the Adirondack Grazers. And then if you just type in Grazers documentary in Google, they'll come up a website for that. Too. Right. And you'll have uh, show it's... times as they as they evolve and people can watch yep. a trailer and learn a little bit more about the film and the families. and. Yeah. And we're using the film as an education tool, too. We're sure. doing a how-to booklet and sending it out to anyone who requests it. Fantastic. To show, to do screenings in the farm community. So Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today, and I'm sorry I was so interrupting. I, sometimes I'm... No, please. It was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> sometimes I'm better about that than others. Today, I don't know, a little hyper. What can I tell you? Too much coffee. <laughs> but uh, I see you have an office in Union Square, so one of these days I'll be knocking on your door to say hi. Great. Wonderful. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you again. And thank you thank to my you sponsor. So You're most welcome. Thank you to Heritage Foods for my sponsorship. Remember, folks, it's our pledge drive. Please go to the website. Hit the donate button. It's not a lot of money, and it really makes a difference to the operation of the station. And, you know, we want to keep growing. We want to keep bringing uh, great guests like Sarah Teal uh, and all of the other wonderful guests I've had on my show and all the other hosts who just mine the the media for great uh, guests and great ideas, and it's just you can't hear it anywhere else. So please, drop some money into the pot, feel good about yourself, and remember, it's tax deductible. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next week. So long now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.